We'll be looking in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 and following. Luke 16, 19 and following. Uh, let's dive in the text and then, and then we'll talk from there. In Luke 16, verse 19, Jesus tells a parable. It goes like this. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Remember that? It will come back. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Nice, Jesus. Okay. Imagery. That's cool. The poor man died, was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Okay. Abraham's side is a Jewish saying for heaven. All right. Abraham's side is a Jewish saying. It's called an idiom for heaven. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. This is the opposite of the man being able to dine sumptuously. Now he just wants one drop of water and can't have it. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm. A great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets to warn them. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced, even if someone should rise from the dead. I don't know if there's a more uncomfortable topic to talk about in our culture than the idea of hell. Christians struggle with talking about hell and understanding how a God of love as they know him can be reconciled with the notion of hell. Now, what's interesting about that is that is a cultural conditioning. And what I mean by that is if you went back in just America 300 years ago, people would have a hard time reconciling grace and mercy to God, but we're very familiar with a God of wrath and of justice and of hell. It's a little bit of a cultural conditioning going on that hell is the thing we struggle with now. I'm not saying it's wrong to struggle with the concept of hell. I'm just telling you that it's unique to our time. We'll look at the Bible and we see things we want to see in it. We see things that appeal, that appeal to us, that call to us. Those things we focus on and things that we might have trouble dealing with, we want to set to the side. And I'm going to ask you tonight not to do that. 
I'm going to ask you tonight rather to let the scriptures focus us and paint the picture for us so that the Bible is the one controlling how we're thinking about who God is. See, the common cultural understanding of Christianity in some liberal circles is the idea that Jesus was this really good dude who was a great teacher, and then Mino Apostle Paul came along and changed Christianity, and that's not really what Jesus taught. Paul was just a jerk and hated everybody. It's all Paul's fault. But the truth of it is, is that Jesus talks about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. So if we have a problem with the doctrine of hell, we have a problem with the biblical Jesus. Okay, so make sure we, we're there. If we have a problem with the doctrine of hell, we have a problem with the biblical Jesus because he is the one who talks about it more than anybody else. Okay, we have this story of Abraham and Lazarus. Uh, earlier, as we've studied Luke, in Luke chapter 12, he's talking and he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. You could turn to Mark chapter 9. And it says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. For it is better for you to be lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus was specific about hell. He was graphic about hell. It was a reality that he was warning people about. We cannot reconcile ourselves to a biblical Jesus, but somehow jettison the doctrine of hell. I am not in any way saying it is easy. I am not in any way saying that this is some sort of easy thing we'll be able to deal with. In my life, I, I know four or five people that have been very close to me that have died. And because of what I believe about the Bible, about the salvation that is offered to Christ, I believe they are in hell. And it's hard. But the truth is the truth. It can be assaulted, it can be denied, it can be undermined, it can be railed against, and at the end, it's still the truth. The truth doesn't matter how we feel, truth doesn't matter how we wanna spin it, the truth is simply the truth. So what I wanna do tonight is carefully walk you through about five or six principles that the Bible teaches us about hell that need to shape our thinking of it. And here's where we're going to run in to problem number one. Problem number one on the doctrine of hell is how most of our massive disappointments happen with God. It's one of our cultural assumptions about God that we need to shift and that we need to more purposefully seek God through Okay, number one, hell is God's. 
Hell is God's. The common cultural perception is that God rules heaven and the devil rules hell. Hell is the devil's. And when you die and go to hell, you get thrown to the devil and you're his. That is not what the Bible teaches. It's become a very common practice when speaking about hell to say things about hell that say, well, God's not there. It's not his. It's not his thing. And if you're meaning that God wants to save people and Jesus came to save, then yes. But understand the Bible is clear that hell is God. The wrong-headed assumption here is the principle that you may have heard me talk about before, that our culture assumes the, the principle of the love God. And what I mean by that is a knowledge of God that is only love. And that's all we ever think about him. Love, God is love. Now that is true. God is love, but that is not all God is. God is so many other things. But what our culture does, rather, has chopped God into one category, love. That's all he is. And if that's all God is, you're right. Hell makes no sense. But if God is more, then there is some ways that hell will begin to come into alignment with who God is. It's very simple to categorize somebody as something, one simple thing, and then it just all get blown apart. Like say, for example, I was talking to somebody and I'm talking about basketball and I say to them, LeBron James is the greatest athlete ever. Okay, I'm thinking basketball. And then they take LeBron James over to Europe and put him on a soccer pitch. What are they gonna see? Well, they're gonna see an athlete, they're gonna see him do things, but he's probably gonna look foolish most of the time. He's gonna be made to look a fool by these professional soccer players. And they're gonna come back to me and go, you said LeBron James was the greatest athlete ever. And I'm gonna go, what? Well, you, you took him and played a stupid football game, soccer game, sorry with him, okay? That's just like if I took Wayne Rooney or Lionel Messi, those are soccer players, okay? I know you're like, who? You take those guys and put them in the NBA. What are you going to see? Murder. That's what you're going to see. They're going to get killed. And somebody's going to say, you said Lionel Messi was the greatest athlete ever. But you're talking about him in the wrong context. Saying God is love and making that the only category about God is going to make you look foolish. It's going to break because it's not all God is. God is Love and God is perfectly loving, but God is also just and God is merciful and God is gracious and God is uh, righteous and holy and wrathful. He's all these things. And we have to learn to praise all of them. American Christianity of your time just wants to praise the God of love and grace not of righteousness, holiness, wrath, and justice. But the Bible tells us that's who he is. Hell is God's. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is speaking about it, and he says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The question you ask the culture is, if hell is the devil's, then why is the devil getting thrown into it? God controls it. 
Revelation chapter 14 speaks about the false prophet and the devil and says he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. In other words, the lamb, Jesus, sits before hell as its ruler, as its owner. Hell is God's. The second thing we need to know about hell is that hell is the place of God's wrath. Hell is the place of God's wrath. Some of the ways that people have flinched at hell is to say that hell is being totally separated from God. You'll have none of God there, nothing of God there. And what if by that you mean none of God's goodness, none of God's mercy, none of God's salvific love, then yes. But the Bible paints a picture of hell being a place where God's wrath over sin is actively being poured out. Okay, Revelation chapter 14, verse 10, again, this is the part of the verse that we didn't really read before. It says, he will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. The wine of wrath poured in the cup of anger and be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb. Uh, when you read this and you read it in Revelation, it talks about the smoke of the pit rising before the lamb on his judgment seat. And it's an image of an offering. See, in the temple, when the Jews worshiped in the temple or in the tabernacle under Moses, there was at all times, at all times, a fire burning outside where an offering was being made so that smoke was always rising from the temple. So that the people of Israel, when they were in the tabernacle, following it around in the desert, or when the temple was in Jerusalem, they'd come up and they'd see that smoke and they would know God is being worshiped here today as they approached it. The image that John in Revelation paints of hell is the same thing. This is an offering before God. The Bible says the church is the praise of God's mercy and righteousness. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is in eternity future, when those who are Christians talk about their salvation, they will be bringing praise to God because of his mercy and grace toward them in Christ. Is that true? Are you saved by mercy and grace? Yes. So you are testimonies of his mercy and grace that are his offering. You will be praise him forever. The church is to the praise of his righteousness and grace. And it can be said that hell is an offering to the praise of his wrath and justice. And that's difficult. It's difficult for us to swallow because of our time. But think about what it would be like if God was not just. How can God not be just? That's not a God. See, God must be the perfection of all things or he's not God. 
God has to be the highest being you can think of. And if you could think of something better than what you thought of before wasn't God. I'll let you kind of kick that around for a little bit. You have, to, you have to be able to think of God and think of the perfection of all things. And a God who is not just cannot be God. Hell is an offering to his justice. And that's exactly why number three is true. Hell is penal. That means punishment. It's punishment. Hell is not just some sort of self-imposed exile. It's not some sort of uh, place where you shake your fist at God and party and live in the kingdom of the devil like some people like to talk about. Hell is the punishment for sins. Revelation 14, 11, and the smoke of their torment goes on forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of his name. It's a punishment. Revelation 21, eight, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, it's not just John who writes stuff like that. Paul has lists like this in Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, etc., etc. The day of judgment, it is sins that will be punished with hell. Ephesians 5, 5 is uh, sort of a blanket statement, if you will. <coughs> For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Hell is an active punishment from God for sin. It is a mistake that the world looks at Christianity and thinks what Christianity is saying to them is this, you better accept Jesus or you're going to hell. You're like, well, that's kind of what we're saying. But what people will hear is I either accept Jesus or I go to hell. The reason someone goes to hell is sin. Rejecting Christ is rejecting the only way to be saved. Sins are the reason God's wrath burns. When Paul sits down to write his magnum opus of Christian theology, the book of Romans, he puts forward his thesis statement for the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith to faith. The righteousness of God that depends on faith. And when he goes into his defense of that statement, the very first thing he says, for the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness in men. It's his first statement. Number four is heaven is eternal. I mean, hell is eternal. We'll get to heaven in a minute. 
Hell is eternal. You already saw Revelation 14, 10, 11, where it says the smoke of their torment rises before them day and night forever and ever. This is continually backed up through the book of Revelation and on into the New Testament. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Forever and ever. Jesus teaches the same thing. And here's the interesting part that we have to kind of understand. When Jesus is talking about the day of judgment, he says, these will go into, a, go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. See, this is an equivocation statement, an equitable statement, I mean, okay? These things are equal. So whatever the eternal life is, the eternal punishment must be its equal in the opposite direction. You following me? See, you can't believe that heaven is forever, that you're gonna go to heaven forever, but then say, but people aren't gonna go to hell for a little while. See, the teaching about hell that says it's only for a little while, but then people who are in hell are just gonna be wiped out is called annihilationalism. It's an idea that people will go to hell for a time, then judgment will come, and then they will be unmade, where they'd never exist, they're gone totally gone. They are annihilated. But if that's true, then Jesus is a liar. Okay. Because whatever heaven is, hell is an equitable statement is an equivalent. It's an equivalency to the same thing. Whatever the punishment is, the life is as well. And here's one of our biggest problems with hell. We ask this question, and it's a good, fair question. How can a finite number of sins committed in this life cause God to put someone in hell forever, right? I mean, even if you sin as hard as you can every day for 90 years, yeah, you're like an 89-year-old dude still sinning. Hey, baby, come here, okay, like... I mean, that's you, you're sinning as hard as you can for 90 years. You still have only committed a finite number of sins. That number may be 65 trillion or Google, like whatever, right? But it's a finite number and you're going to hell forever? That doesn't make sense. The problem with the question is it it's, doesn't really present an accurate view of reality because it makes an assumption. It assumes that you will stop sinning in hell. When in fact, what is happening is you are just being locked in to sinfulness forever. The Holy Spirit will no longer restrain you Society will no longer restrain the person in hell. Fear of punishment will no longer restrain their baser impulses. God will remove from them what are called the common graces. The people in hell will be screaming curses at God, denying him even as they are being punished for those sins. No one in this room is a temporary creature. You are all infinite creatures. You will exist forever and you will become one of two things. See, my favorite promise 
about heaven is not eternalness. That's not my favorite thing. I know it's some people's favorite thing. Some people's favorite thing is we're gonna live forever with God. That's great, that's not my favorite thing. My favorite thing is not there will be no more pain or suffering or illness for those things will have gone away. That's not my favorite thing. And that's a pretty good thing if you're Greg Pinkner, okay? But that's not my favorite thing. My favorite thing about heaven is the promise that we will be conformed to Christ-likeness. And we will be like him, which means the sin nature that destroys my life and my heart daily will be gone. And for the first time in my life, I'll be free. That's my favorite promise about heaven. Just like in Christ, we will be conformed to Christ-likeness so that we are righteous forever. The wicked will be set free in their sinfulness forever. It's not a finite number of sins. It's just being locked into what you pursued on this life forever. And finally, number five, hell is torment. Some views of hell are the idea that it's just loneliness or uh, abandonment, and that may be true. Whatever it is, the Bible puts forward a picture of it as being uh, torture, of it being agony, of it being horrendous. It's not something people are going to be in going, I'm, I'm abandoned alone. Uh, C.S. Lewis, for all his greatness, uh, and, and so many things I agree with him on, is, is errant in some things like everybody is. Uh, and one of the things I don't feel like he uh, had a good grasp on because uh, is, is the doctrine of hell, where he thought everybody was just gonna be alone in a room forever so that they had to live with themselves forever. I mean, essentially. I know if you're a C.S. Lewis fan, you're going, no, it's not right. It's all there. Okay, okay. calm down, scholar, okay? <laughs> Just go with me here. Revelation 20.10 says, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and will suffer with the beast and the false prophet and there they will be tormented day and night. This is the Greek word for torture. It's the same word that Jesus uses of the rich man's story of Lazarus, exact same word. The man died, was carried into angels by Abraham's side. The rich man died, was buried in Hades and being in torment. Same word, torture. Now some people say, well, the story of Jesus is an allegory. It's a metaphor. And I'll say, okay, let's say it's a metaphor. What's the meaning of the metaphor? That it's really bad? Isn't that what it's, I mean, if either it's, even if, it, if it's descriptive, it's really bad. And if it's just a metaphor, it's really bad. Because the only reason you would use a metaphor of, well, it's going to be fire and torture is if it's something like fire and torture. <laughs> like that, that's the only meta reason you use that metaphor. Is hell fire? That is the most used description of it. Do we know? No, we don't know what it is but we know it will be the full fury of a perfect God whose holiness and righteousness has been offended 
cursed at, mocked. And the full cup of his wrath will be poured out. But in all this, even in a story about hell, because whatever the story of Lazarus is about, there is no question that the rich man's torture is the central tenet of the story. Even in that, Jesus speaks of the salvation he came to offer. In the last verse of chapter 16, the man has begged for someone to come and tell his brothers what hell's like, save them, warn them, do something. And Abraham tells them it won't matter. They have the Bible, they have Moses, they have the prophets. And he says, no, raise someone from the dead who will go and tell them. And Jesus says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Jesus' resurrection is exactly what he means. Jesus' resurrection accomplished amazing things. If you've never sat down and truly studied Romans 3, 21 through 26, you won't understand why Jesus' death on the cross is the perfect payment for hell, for the sinner to be released from it. In Romans chapter five, it says this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood how much more, that's what it means, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? This word justified in Greek means being declared righteous forever. Being stamped as righteous forever. Jesus' death on the cross and the person who comes to him in faith, calling him Lord, proclaiming him Savior, comes to him trusting his deliverance is counted righteous forever and saved from the wrath of God. The message of the cross is more and more in our culture being mocked as intolerant, as foolish, as evil, and it's just gonna get worse. But I hope that you see that part of our evangelistic endeavor is to offer people the only forgiveness of sins available. The only offer of a life with God forever. Hell waits on the other side or heaven. We rejoice because we know Christ has come, died, been raised to purchase for us a life with God, a conforming to his image, a place to be with him forever. So while our hearts may be heavy for some we know, turn that into a fire 
to speak about Christ to them boldly, without fear, but also let it let you rejoice in who Christ is and what he's done. Let's pray and worship together. Our Father God, your word is true. Your word is without question and without fail our source and our uh, compass. Father, I pray tonight that as our hearts may be heavy and not understanding uh, or wrestling with an understanding of what hell means and is, that we will not make ourselves more moral than you. Meaning not to say, well, I just think that's wrong, God. How could you do that? But rather submit to you knowing that you know best. You know what is right and good. And Father, above everything, we pray, we pray that we are in honor to the name of Christ. His death secured our place at your table. And let us praise him for it. In his name we pray.